Thank you all so much for your prayers for our family and um, the homegoing of my dad to glory, which we just had the memorial service yesterday, is, and uh, what a time of celebration that was. Uh, certainly going to miss my dad, and, uh, but we had a wonderful day yesterday just remembering his life, giving God glory um, in saving him. And uh, it was just a special, special time. I missed being with you. Um, I saw Vivian Bell, you're back there. You have been, we have been praying for you, sister. So know that you have been in our prayers with Shelby's home going. And uh, I'm just glad you're here today, sister. You encouraged me. I was asking for you, and I turned around, and, and there you were. So thank you for being a blessing to me. Because I drove in last night, Tom and Josie Rios were out that way, and with their kids and came and picked me up. And what time do we get home? Around 3.30 in the morning. Um, we're ready to go, though. We're ready to go. But I wanted to be with you. Patty will be coming back with the kids um, today. But thank you so much for your prayers and so thankful for God's grace in the life of my family. It was interesting yesterday uh, at the memorial service and then afterward just to have, you know, my dad's Greek family with us, you know, about, uh, oh, a good 100 people were at the house after the reception. And, you know, my, the Lord just pulled my dad and saved him. And uh, still, out of almost uh, his entire family, is the only one who, who knows the Lord. And so still his brothers and sisters were there. And so we just pray for the testimony that goes out even in the midst of that. You know, when you're without Christ and you go to funerals, but when you're in Christ, as my dad was, and then you come to this one, it was really a time of celebration. He's not really dead, is he, right? To be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord, and he is home with his Savior, and we're, we're thankful for that. But thank you for praying for us and lifting us up. Do pray. I was just telling Alan and Melody, my, my mom, she's just tired, right? I mean, she's been caring for my dad for really about three years, which has been harder, and then the last three months, and so she's very, very tired, but very grateful. All the family was able to be there uh, for him and with them, and uh, just really appreciate your prayers, but I want you to know how much I love you and how I was so excited to get back and to be with this body and to be with you. I didn't want to miss another week, and I think, uh, again, we got home late, but I, I think I'm ready for you today, though. Um, I did study all week. That's the great thing. You can just bring your tools. I don't have to bring a tractor with me. It's just right there on the computer. And I was getting ready for you all week and um, looking forward to that. But just want you to know how much we, Patty and I and our family, appreciate Grace Church of the Valley, the body, the prayers. Vivian, I wanted to be there with you on Wednesday with, uh, for Shelby's home going. But we're so thankful for this body and for you, and just counted a great privilege that we're here. So thank you for praying for us. It's been a busy year for us, and a move, and a wedding, and now my dad, and, uh, but we're very, very grateful. You know, it was one of the things I'd say to the younger people here, it's amazing to have all of our kids and all the grandchildren around his, his deathbed, and you just see how fragile life is, but it's good to be in the house of mourning, isn't it, as it says in Ecclesiastes, because it shows you where life really is. And, and I think sometimes, uh, all, maybe some of your own kids have not had to go to a funeral. And if, you don't, if you're not able to go to a memorial service or a funeral, you don't really see the span of life until you see that. So to have all of our kids watch that, see that, we were able to worship with him last Sunday. Right now, last week, he had already been not very conscious by that time, but all of the grandkids were there. We had a worship service for him, and I was able to exhort our children because, you know, my dad was saved out of a pagan background. Lord just redeemed him. So how did the Lord save him? Just a couple came into my mom and dad's life and just started sharing Christ with them. Then another couple started sharing Christ with them. And then my family my mom and dad came to Christ. All of the kids, the three of us, came to Christ. And it's amazing that you go back in the years, somebody reached out to them with the gospel. 
But I took some time to exhort my kids because here's my mom and dad, first generation. That's a fresh gospel for what the Lord redeemed them out of. Then I grew up from about eight or nine in the life of the church. And so I got to be part of that and experience that at the second generation. And so my kids and my brother and sister's kids are third generation. And I just exhorted them that the first generation comes to Christ. The second generation um, enjoys it. And then the third generation just leaves it. And sometimes they walk from it. And so the exhortation is for our kids who have been given a great baton spiritually from you know, their grandma and grandpa, then we've raised our kids completely in that and to keep that gospel fresh and that baton that's been given to them. And I think of some of that for you. You've been given an amazing baton that way and you need to carry that on and to lead your children, parents, in that so that they don't forget the preciousness of the gospel. And uh, I just pray that we never would. And we had a time just to reflect on that with all the grandchildren they're trying to pass that heritage um, onto them. But thank you so much for your prayers, and um, I'm glad to be back, even though I got back early last, yesterday morning. So, well, let's turn our attention over to First John. I am ready for you, though. Um, you tell me afterward if it was clear, okay? First John chapter 3, and we're looking at verses 4 through 10. We're looking at a wonderful section it's part two on evidences of divine birth. What is it that bears witness and testimony of the divine birth in our life? And we come to this passage. So let me read it to you. Very important in 1 John 3, 4 through 10. It says there that everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's bow just in a word of prayer and ask the Lord to illuminate our minds. Father, we are dependent upon you. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So Lord, we can't uh, grasp, understand, and comprehend your word apart from the Spirit's work and apart from you. So do your work in us now. We're dependent on you. Thank you that we can look into such holy things and find an eternal word, find a word that would assure us and maybe convict some, Lord, we would pray that you send out your word. Thank you for its instruction. We recognize as we sit under it, it is your word. And so give us ears to hear. Give us a heart to obey. Father, we do pray for, um, I just pray for Vivian, Lord. I thank you for her. Joy to see her. Thank you for the blessing she is already in my life, just to see her. That thrilled me this morning. I pray your comfort to her. Thank you for 58 years. Father, thank you for the fulfillment of their vow before you till death do us part. Thank you for that godly example. We pray your encouragement to her in the days ahead as well as for my mom, Father, that you comfort them, remind them of glory, give them a mind for eternity. Thank you, Father, that really no one ever really dies. Father, for we the believer awakes in glory, and one day we get a brand new body when Jesus comes back. And so, Lord, we're grateful for that, grateful for the hope that is in Christ Jesus. So guide our hearts this day. Minister to each, Father. Bless those families that are new. Thank you for bringing new families to us. We pray that, Father, we would be able to see a generation come forth out of this church and out of these families, Father, that would 
have a mind to honor you and obey you in all things and know great joy. So, Father, we give you praise now in Christ's name. Amen. Well, John writes, you remember, as we've been saying all along, so that his readers, that would be us, would know that they have eternal life. That's why he's writing. He wants us to know if we're his. And he's writing this, you remember, in chapter 3, verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. He, he wants you to be sure of that. And so in that sense, he wants to give us and grant us assurance is really the theme as we've seen in 513. At the same time that he's wanting to grant us assurance, he is combating the false teachers who were kind of peddling a poisonous gas here in midst of these believers. They were saying really a couple things about sin. Either you could reach a state of sinless perfection and not sin, and so they were denying sin's existence in perfectionism, or they were denying the gravity of sin and basically saying that sin really just didn't matter because the spirit is good and the body is evil, and so if you sin in the body, it really doesn't matter. And so what John did, you remember, is he responds to that teaching by providing a series of tests that reveal whether one is a child of God or a child of the devil. And as he moves us through a series of tests, he wants to help us distinguish between the true and the false. And what John says, and certainly we need to heed it today, is that you want to look at the lifestyle, not just the claim of faith. In fact, the most frightening discovery that anyone could ever make in the whole universe, I would think, is to think that you are on your way to heaven only to find out that you will spend eternity in hell. I mean, could you imagine anything more tragic than that? I mean, is that not the ultimate, ultimate deception? I mean, anything else would just seem trivial in light of that one. To think that you're on your way to glory and and to have that not be true? I mean, could there be anything more devastating than to hear the Lord say that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of God is the one who enters into heaven. You remember Jesus said, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and in your name do mighty works? I declare to them, Jesus said, that I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I mean, imagine that type of deception. Imagine to think that you're in the kingdom and to not be. And that's really what's, the, what's at stake here in 1 John. People saying one thing and living another. In fact, our Lord, I think we understand, clearly said that you've got to have an obedient lifestyle to the profession that is spoken about. But certainly, not everybody believes that. Not everybody believes that in our day and in John's day. And I I shared with you a few weeks back some of the the thought that is out there in modern theology regarding the gospel and specifically regarding the lifestyle that must accompany the profession of faith. And I gave you some excerpts. Let me give you just a few more, okay? I don't mean to be redundant here, but I want you to understand, and some of these men that I'll quote... um, Obviously, we're going to differ with them. It doesn't mean that everything they say is wrong, but in this case, we don't think it's from the Scripture. And so I want you to be able to examine some of these quotes I give you in light of what John's going to say in our time in the Word. The guy that I'm thinking about, and some of you remember him, is Charles Ryrie. Remember that name? He wrote the Ryrie Study Bible. I'd say we have many things in common with him. But one of the particular doctrines that he espouses is in this arena of salvation. And so I want to give you just a few quotes so that you understand that 
what we're preaching on here is vital, vital. And, and you need to be aware of this. So I'm not trying to beat you today. I'm not trying to come in with a stick and, or if this is the mic and just, you know. But I just feel like I got to share with you what's out there so that you and I can be a thinking, discerning people. And for the most part, I want to do this so that you understand your salvation and understand what salvation looks like. But Charles Ryrie wrote a book, and the book is called So Great a Salvation. And I'm going to just read you a quote from, from him and another man by the name of Zane Hodges. And I want you to see how what John is combating here is exactly what they teach. Ryrie said this, in the gospel invitation, okay, and all this is quotes, okay, repentance, he said, is just a synonym for faith. Okay, if you say, okay, we'd say they're different. They're not just a synonym. But he said, no, quote, turning from sin is required for salvation. So you can, you can confess them, Ryrie's saying, but you do not have to turn from sin. It's not required in salvation. Another one, saving faith is simply being convinced or giving credence, he said, to the truth of the gospel. We would understand and say, yeah, you got to do that. He said it is confidence that Christ can remove guilt and give eternal life, comma, not a personal commitment to him. Understand the theology there. In other words, you can give credence, but you don't have to make a personal commitment to him. He said this, and I think you'll understand it. He said only, quote, the judicial aspects of salvation, like justification, imputed righteousness, positional sanctification, are guaranteed for believers in this life. He went on to say that practical sanctification and growth in grace require a post-conversion dedication, he said, or, or post-conversion act of dedication. In other words, you just have to intellectually comprehend it. You don't really have to live it. And if you're going to grow, then you need a post-conversion act of dedication. He went on to say that submission to Christ's supreme authority is not germane to the saving transaction. Pretty bold comment. In other words... You don't have to submit to him as Lord when you come to him. That's what he said. He said it's not germane to the saving transaction, pages 71 through 76. He went on to say that neither dedication nor willingness to be dedicated to Christ are issues at salvation. In other words, you just have to comprehend him intellectually. You don't have to give your life to him, is what he's saying. He said that Christians, quote, may fall into a state. And think about the passage that I read. They may fall into a state of lifelong carnality. That's what they believe. He said the whole category, quote, of carnal Christians, born-again people who continuously live like the unsaved, exist in the church. Now, I'm reading that, but if you just glance down in your Bible, what, what does John say in 3.6? No one who abides in him keeps on what? Sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one, what? Deceive you. He went on to say that disobedience and prolonged sin are no reason to doubt the reality of one's faith. It's a bold statement. He said a believer may utterly forsake Christ and come to the point of not believing. He said that those who have once believed are secure forever, even if they turn away. Really? Now, now, you just listen to that and then look down in your Bible at 3.9. That no one 
born of God makes a practice of what? Sinning. Why? For God seeds abide in him as seed. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been what? Born of God. Here's another work by a man by the name of Zane Hodges. And I'm not trying to be polemic, but I want you to be aware. Well, you say, well, why? Well, I want you to know how to interact with people in the community. I mean, is, is, what does John say and what do these, these men say? Zane Hodges, in his book, Absolutely Free, said this. In no sense is repentance related to saving faith. And what he's trying to say there is that we would say that you must believe and you must, what, with your sin? Repent of your sin. That the gospel involves both belief and it involves repentance. What he's saying is, no, it doesn't. He's saying that you could have faith but really, faith is a synonym for repentance. You don't really have to turn. He said faith, which is hard to believe, is a human act, not a gift of God. He says it occurs in a decisive moment, does, but does not necessarily continue. He said that true faith can be subverted, overthrown, collapse, or even turn into unbelief. Amazing some of the statements that are made. Trusting Jesus, he said, means believing the saving facts about him, and to believe those facts is to appropriate the gift of eternal life. He said this, that those who add any suggestion of commitment have departed from the New Testament idea of salvation. Bold statements. He said, Christ offers a whole range, interesting how he said it, listen, of post-conversion deliverance experiences to supply what Christians lack. He said, but these other salvations require the addition of human works such as obedience, submission, and confessing Jesus as Lord. Now, you and I might just say, hey, obedience confession and, and, and confession of Jesus as Lord, that's what a Christian is. Those aren't post-conversion acts of dedication. He went on to say that Hodges' submission is not in any sense a condition for eternal life. Really? I mean, is that how Jesus handled the rich young ruler? I mean, I'm thinking about you high school guys at Kingsburg over here. I mean, Really? He doesn't require any, listen, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, pick up your what? Your cross and follow me. He didn't give the rich young ruler an option. He said, if you really want to come to me, depart from everything you own and come follow me. And the rich young ruler went away, what? Sad. But you see, we've got a new gospel today on this, this thought. He, he said, did Hodges Call, what do you think about this? Calling on the Lord means appealing to him, not submitting to him. I mean, do you actually believe that someone could be a Christian and just appeal to him and not submit to him? He goes on that it is, a, it is destructive uh, to question the salvation of professing Christians. Destructive, he says. He said, he went on to say that New Testament writers never questioned the reality of the reader's faith. I'm like, really? Wow. And, and, and I'm, I'm done here. He says, last one. It is possible to experience a moment of faith that guarantees heaven for eternity. Then, and I'm quoting, turn away permanently and live a life that is utterly barren of any spiritual fruit page 118 119 he said last one believers might even cease to name christ or confess christianity unbelievable so you think what john writes listen we're living it right here in the 21st century we're living it here in the communities in which we live. That's why I exhorted my children to not be the third generation who ruins it. I said, my grandpa 
gave you a baton and he slapped it into my hand in the race. And I ran with it and I said, you kids have grown up with far more than whatever I grew up with at your age and I'm putting the baton in your hand. Listen, you got to run the race. And, and when we talk about Christianity, we're talking about what it means here even just to follow Christ. So here's the question. How do you discern between the genuine and the make-believe? And what John does here is he gives us from 2.28 down through 3.10 five distinguishing marks that identify the children of God that we might know who is his and who is not. And what John's going to say, and I want you to get this, he said by this, 3.10, it is what? Evident. I like to just say, it's obvious. So what are those distinguishing marks? Now, we've talked about them, and we're actually on the fifth and the final one. We said, first, there's a pattern of abiding, verse 28, a pattern of abiding, He says, and now little children, abide in him. In other words, one of the first distinguishing marks of a believer is they abide in Christ. You say, what did that mean? It means to remain, and it it means to dwell. In other words, if you're a a child of God, you abide, you remain, you dwell, you follow. You say with the disciples, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's one who remains, which right away cuts against the statements that I just read. You can't walk an aisle pray a prayer, sign on the dotted line, grow up in Awanas, win the Timothy Award, and then walk away from it in high school, college, into your 60s, and into your 70s. You've got to abide in him. You've got to remain in him. You say, does that save you? No. These are just the distinguishing marks of a child of God. A child of God does abide. Secondly, verse 29, you've got to practice righteousness. So there's a pattern of abiding, a practice of righteousness. Look at it. I don't want to review too long. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been what? Born of him. It's a distinguishing mark. You abide. You practice righteousness. And all these words you remember are in the present tense. Thirdly, it's our privilege to be in God's family. 3.1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. And the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. We've gained that status of being a child of God, and as his children, we follow. And then fourthly, we looked at our pursuit of purity. Here's the mark of a believer, that everyone who may, or verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, A believer is in the pursuit of purity. And so we left off here at this final fifth mark, the fifth distinguishing mark. I'll just say it this way, is not only does a believer follow a pattern of abiding, follow a practice of righteousness, they're privileged to be in God's family and they wear that. They pursue purity. And here's just the best way to say it from verse four down. They do not practice sin. Okay, and I'll have to explain this to you. They do not practice sin. And that doesn't mean you don't sin. And I'm going to be heavy on the word practice sin because it's there in the text. Look at verse 4. He says that everyone, no exception, even to the Gnostics, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. So for a believer to practice sin is a contradiction to those who have been born of God. And you're going to want to track this. Look at it in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning. Look at verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Look at verse 8. Whoever, though, on the other hand, makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. 
verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. And so you see this word over and over again that what John is going to describe here is one habitually sinning. So how can we get a handle on this ideal of they do not practice sin, okay? John gives four reasons why a believer does not practice a life of continual sin. I mean, he says there, they don't, and we're asking the question, why? And I want to marshal these arguments, arguments out. We'll take this week and next week. But here's the first reason. Because practicing sin is contrary to God's law that we now love. That's another way to say it. Practicing sin is contrary to God's law that we now love. And I'll explain what he's getting at. But look at the text with me because the text is everything, is it not? In verse 4, he presents two aspects of sin. Look at it. He says, makes a, he uses this word, a practice of sinning. But that one who practices sinning, okay, also practices, here's a second word, lawlessness. Now that first concept there in verse 4, let me touch on this with you, is the practice of sin or sinning. It's a general term for sin. And I think you and I would agree. You, if I said, what sin? You would say it's just uh, to miss the mark. It is that. It deviates, if you will, from God's righteous standard. God has a law. His law is law. Anytime we sin, we deviate from that law. We step outside of his revealed law and we sin. And so in that sense, it was used of a, a guy shooting a bow and arrow and if that's the target on the door, what sin does is it misses the mark. That's a general tar ideal of sin. It fails to hit the target. But sin in the scripture is not only a mistake. It is not just a human weakness. It is not just a human failure. Sin ultimately is rebellion against God. And it's a rebellion against his law that he's revealed. But look what else he says there in verse 4. It's interesting. He says, makes a practice of sinning. He says, also, second word here, practices. He uses this word lawlessness. He combines it there and he says at the end of four, sin is lawlessness. Now, when he describes lawlessness there, it, it's just the simple Greek word anomia. Nomia is law. Anomia is living without the law. So you've got a general term for sin to miss the mark. But you've got another term in here, a stronger term, that describes sin as lawlessness. Now, it would be fair to say that those are both just categories of sin. But here in 1 John, this ideal of lawlessness is a stronger term. And it's not describing here a particular commandment that is disobeyed. It's describing an attitude of rebellion against God's supreme authority and the authority of his word. It's hard to kind of capture it. It is an attitude. It is a, a spirit of rebellion. In fact, in the scripture, it describes, when you look at that word lawlessness, it describes the unsaved. It describes the wicked. It actually puts people in a league with Satan, who is the man of lawlessness. It is referred to those in the end times who are opposed to God's kingdom and his final judgment in the last days. So here's what John's saying. He's saying that not only sin does it miss the mark of God's righteousness, but that all sin is a clear defiance to God's law. So to sin then is to stand with the devil and to oppose Christ. And he says, if you are a born-again believer... Here's what he's saying. You no longer practice lawlessness. So you say, well, why is that? Because when you came to Christ, you were given a new heart. You were given a heart that longs to obey God, that longs to obey his word. You could say with the psalmist, remember when he said, oh, how I love thy, what? Law. See, this is what happens in the divine transaction, and we'll get to it next week, of somebody being born again. You are moving in your life, if I could say it this way. You commit sin, 
you are committed to lawlessness. You are committed to living apart from God. You don't care about God. You don't care about righteousness. No, you just want to live in sin. You're pursuing sin with whoever you want, whenever you want, and your life is yours, you own it. But when Jesus Christ comes into your life, he gives you faith as a gift. He also gives you repentance as a gift. And what he does is he turns you from this way of life to walking this way. And and what he does is he creates a miracle in your heart. He causes you to be born again. And whatever you used to love, now you hate because you're walking this way. And whatever you used to revel in and enjoy, now all of a sudden you don't revel in and you don't enjoy. Why? Because God has performed a supernatural miracle in your heart. And you say with the psalmist, oh, how I love thy law. We conclude, does a believer with Paul in the book of Romans, that the law is good. And so what John is saying here, there, the, here is that our new nature makes the practice of sin impossible. Now, you might say, but Scott, I sin all the time. I, we do sin, do we not? In fact, if you deny sin in 1 John, you are a what? A liar. So you say, well, what's the difference? He said, if you deny sin, you're a liar. It's, I think it's easily understood. He's not talking about an occasional sin here. He's talking about somebody who's practicing sinning as a way of life. He says a new believer can't do that because he or she has been utterly transformed. I could just give you the example of my dad. I mean, I can take you back to all of our Super 8 movies. And if you just saw my dad, you'd say, well, that's a man of the world. Yeah, and I'm not trying to create like an external distinction, but there he is in all of his war pictures, cigars in his mouth, cigarettes in his hand, tattoos all over his body, beer cans in his hand. That's how they live. That's how any of us live without Christ. But all I know is somebody knocked on their door, shared Christ with them, and my mom and dad went from walking like this to doing a 180. You say, well, why? We could say they became a Christian. So what does that mean? They became born again. You say, well, what happens when you become born again? God does a supernatural miracle in your heart so that whatever you loved, you now hate. And whatever you used to hate, you now love. And he began walking like this. And for the rest of his life, I don't know how old he was. He's probably 30 when he got saved. They were walking like this, walking like this, walking towards Christ, praying. And I saw the transformation take place in his life. I saw our videos change, you know. And he began to drag me to church, and I didn't like that because, you know, I thought Sunday was the day for football. You know, and I wasn't redeemed at that point. Scott, we're going to go to church. Ah, really? His heart changed. You say, well, he's a good guy now. No, he's not a good guy. A supernatural miracle was performed in his heart. And what John is saying here is, listen, no one, verse 4, it says there, everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Look at the next verse. and, And he says, you know that he appeared to take away what? Sin. He appeared, did Christ, to take away your sin, not to keep walking in it. He appeared to remove it. He appeared to get rid of the guilt, the punishment. But listen, he also appeared to make you holy. You can't keep walking like that. So when you've got these quotes at the beginning of our talk here this morning, no, it's not squaring away with Scripture. You say, well, what happens in the heart of a believer? Let me show you. Look over at Romans for a second. Here's the heart of a believer as it relates to not practicing sin because it's contrary to God's law. Here's the heart of a believer, Romans 6, 17, and I'm doing this so that you would be assured, okay? He says in Romans 6, 17, thanks be to God that though you were, what? Once slaves of sin, he says, once slaves of sin, you have become obedient from the what? The heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been verse 18 set free from what sin you say what well, well, yeah, i'm not set free and i'd say i'm not set free so what's he talking about set free 
He's talking about being set free from the domain, the, the dominion and the power of sin. Doesn't mean you can't sin, but it does mean that when you're going this way and he changed you, God Almighty performed a miracle in your heart so that you're no longer under sin's dominion. He set you free from being in bondage to it is the thought. Look at verse 18. You've become slaves of what? Righteousness. He said, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, 619. He said, watch this. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to what? Lawlessness leading to more what? Lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to what? righteousness leading to sanctification for you were once right were slaves of sin when you were free in regard to righteousness and he goes on to talk about the work of christ so listen you've been transformed you can't all he's saying is this you can't live in lawlessness and still claim christ and anyone who claims christ and lives that way is not a believer you say well well how is that? Because somehow they must not be born of God. Because when God gets a hold of you, he changes your life, doesn't he? I mean, he changed mine. Look over at 2 Corinthians for a second. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me fill this out for you. And you've seen this scripture before. It talks about being, not being unequally yoked. And certainly we apply that to marriage. Some people stretch that into the business world at certain points. You have to be careful. But he says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Paul says, therefore, what partnership has righteousness with what? Lawlessness. Listen, when, when he saved you, you were moving, you were lawless. But when he saved you, you now have a heart that wants to obey him. And he just says, what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? Look at 614. What fellowship has light with what? Darkness. God redeemed you. In fact, if I can, this is just the promise of the new covenant, is it not? Look back in your Bible to the book of Ezekiel. Will you do this? Go back in Ezekiel 36. Find that passage. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Go back to Ezekiel 36, and this is the promise of the new covenant, is it not? This is what happens when somebody becomes a Christian. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, you remember this promise of the new covenant, and this is we're in the new covenant. He's talking about being a believer in the new covenant. He said in 36, 26, I will give you a new, what? Heart and a new spirit and i will put with it that i will put within you and i will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and then it says i will put my what spirit within you and cause you cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules so here's another way to say it. I'm walking, I'm 14, okay? Was I lawless? Heck yes. Huh. You say, well, you're a bad sinner. No, I was just sinning, missing the mark in general, but I was beyond that. At 14, I was lawless. You say, what do you mean lawless? I didn't want anybody to tell me what to do. I didn't want God to tell me what to do. I didn't want my mom to tell me what to do, my dad and their newfound faith to tell me what to do. I wanted to live how I wanted to live, with who I wanted to live, date whatever girl that I wanted to live with. I didn't want my mom to tell me what she thought about that girl. Mom, we're just friends. Don't worry about it. Mom, I'm just going to go to this party. Don't worry about it. I was lawless. But all I know is God supernaturally saved me at 14. And all I know, you say, well, what happened? Well, he convicted me of my sin. I got down on my knees. But I'm telling you, when I got up off my knees, this is just Salvation 101. He changed me. Can you explain how he does that? All of a sudden, where I used to not care, had a fist in God's face, he just took my heart and changed it so that he did and made me walk a 180, gave me faith as a gift, repentance as a gift, and I started to walk this way. And the stuff I used to love, 
Now I hated it. And the more I used to want lawlessness, I'm moving towards righteousness. And the stuff that I used to enjoy, now I didn't enjoy. And the stuff that I never wanted to go to, like church, now I wanted to be with the people of God. You say, what is that? That's a miracle of the new heart in salvation, is it not? So all John's saying is this. A believer can't practice sin. You know why? Because when you become a child of God, your heart's different. You don't want to love the stuff that you pursued. He's changed you. He put it in you. He's going to cause you, the new covenant there, to walk in his commandments. Look back one book. Let me show you Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. This is, again, the promise of the new covenant, which is just simply a description of being born again. But in Jeremiah 31, verse 33, he talks about that new covenant promise that came out of the Old Testament. But he says in Jeremiah 31, verse 33, he says, but this, 31, 33, is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. What is it? I will put my, what does it say? Law. You say, well, hold on. See, when you're a believer, an unbeliever, you don't want the law. Because the law would convict you. The law would slay you. The law would reveal how off you are. And when you don't want Christ, you not only miss the mark, but you don't want a law. You're lawless, okay? But look at this again, 33. I will put my law where? Within them, and I will write it on their, what? Hearts, and I will be my God, and they shall be my people. What a great thought. See, here believers, now as you turn back to 1 John, okay? Believers, I would say it this way, love God's law. Our hearts have changed. We're not in rebellion anymore. And when we do sin, here's what happens. We can, what? Fess our sin, right? And we say, Lord, we agree with you about our sin, but we're never happy in our sin. Are you happy in your sin? I'm not. I'm not. And so I confess it. You say, well, Scott, well, then you're sinning. Yeah, I do sin. You, you sin. John's talking about the practice of sin, okay? He, he's not talking about an occasional sin. He's talking about someone. Here's what the people are doing. I'll just give you like a, a visual, okay? Here, here's Christianity today. I sin. I, people cheat on their wife. They cheat on their taxes. They cheat with their money. They don't honor God. They don't love God's people. Oh, but they heard a sermon. Somebody brought them to a rally. Oh, okay, I'm supposed to be doing this, and now I'm starting to go to church, and I, I kind of read the Bible, but the world's kind of tugging at me, and, and it's tugging, and then all of a sudden, you know people like this? And then they go like this again, don't they? And they start walking this way. And instead of doing a 180, they've done a 360, okay? And I've told you about that guy months ago, like the guy I played basketball with at junior college. Halfway in the year, I find out, you know, I'm trying to live for Christ. This guy's in an immoral relationship with his girlfriend. And I come up and I confront him. I said, brother, you're a Christian, right? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Um, how, how could you be a Christian and live like that? And, and I said, you, you're, you're a Christian. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. But he's, he's in an immoral relationship. You get the picture? He's like every other guy on my basketball team. I'm like, well, how does that work? He's naming Christ. He goes to church every week. He grew up in the life of the church down in Los Angeles. That pastor's still at that church. So I said, brother, what are you doing, man? I said, what do you do? And here's what he said. He said, I just do it, and then I confess my sin. See, I, I've run into a lot of people like this, naming Christ, but living lawless. Now listen, I can't see inside that man's heart, but I did tell him this examine yourself to see whether you be what? In the faith. Because a true Christian, though they, he or she can sin, they can't live in it. They can't practice it. But I meet people like this all the time. All the time. And they, they, they're, they're walking this way. Then they come to Christ. And then all of a sudden, the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things, enter in and choke the word. And the last state of them becomes worse than the first. And we're giving them assurance. John gives them no assurance. So you say, well, why is that, pastor? This way. 
It's a supernatural reality. When you come to Christ, you can't practice sin, practice, okay? Why? Because it's contrary to the law that you now love. You can't still revel in that sin. And so we sin, but remember Paul said, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So the one claiming Christ but practicing sin is contrary to God's law that we now love. That's the first point. Second point, okay? Practicing sin is not only contrary to God's law that we now love. Secondly, we do not practice sin because practicing sin, okay, is not only contrary to God's law, but it is contrary to the Savior's purpose in taking away our sin. Look at the text in verse 5. John's just reasoning with you. And, um, and I, you know, I just say to you, by the way, it's not like I'm preaching this because I'm looking at you thinking, um, hey, this is our church. But I'm saying, if the shoe fits, wear it. But I want to help you. Because maybe in me describing this, you say, oh, Scott, that's not me. I don't want to keep moving towards, listen, then that's the sign of the life of God in your soul. Now watch this. When somebody's moving towards lawlessness, we're not talking about the the battle of Paul in Romans 7, you understand? I'm not talking about that. The guy in Romans 7 is in a battle. I do the things that I what? I don't want to do. The very thing that I want to do, I find myself not doing. I'm at war. I'm not talking about that guy. Either is John. John's talking about the guy who doesn't care about the battle. John's talking about the guy who has no thought of the battle. John's talking about the guy who seemingly is a multiple, you know, he's multiple in his practices and his lifestyle is this way. The guy in Romans 7 He's in the battle. I'm in the battle. You say, well, Scott, if, I, if you're in the battle and I feel that battle, well, that's a, mark of the, that's a mark of assurance. Because one of the distinguishing marks is you abide in Christ, you don't practice sin, you're part of God's family, you pursue purity, and you don't practice sin because not only is law inside you, but it's contrary to the Savior's purpose. Look at it, verse 5. He appeared to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. Let me just cut to the principle here. Christ died to take away our sin and to make us holy. He did not die to provide an excuse for you to live in sin. You get it? That's the point. So how does that go with my friend on that basketball team? Who, and and this is the way I look at it. It's not really funny. And And I think I had a credit card. If I had one in my pocket, I said to him, I said, oh, I said, is this how it works? You pray a prayer, sign on the dotted line, you go to church every week, but you live in immorality with your girlfriend, use the credit card, and you've you got almighty forgiveness, and you don't have to follow Christ. Listen, Jesus appeared, <laughs> this is what John's saying, to take away our sin. He appeared to make me and to make you holy. He did not appear to take away our sin and to give you an excuse to live in sin. So to practice sin is contrary to the Savior's purpose of Christ coming. Here's what Peter said that in 2.24, he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So listen, when you're a believer and he changes you, You can't keep practicing lawlessness. And when you recognize and you start walking, he died to take away your sins at salvation, but he also died to make you more righteous so that as you grow in your Christian life, you're ever growing in your sanctification. That's a believer. See, a believer to me is like, do you know that great saint of God? It was J. Oswald Sanders. He wrote one of the best books on spiritual leadership. In fact, I think it was called Spiritual Leadership. It's a classic. But J. Oswald Sanders said when he was 86 years old, he said he'd look back and take a uh, checklist every six months in his life to see if his life more reflected the fruit of the Spirit than the previous six months. 
That's a believer. A believer is somebody who wants to be more like Christ. See, do you grab the distinction? Everyone who fixes their eyes on him purifies himself as he is pure. But everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. It doesn't jive here in our theology. So I'm thinking about all those people. I'm thinking of Zane Hodges, who basically in one of his works said, you could become an atheist practically as long as at one point in one time you confessed Christ. In other words, in his mind, all you have to do is give intellectual credence to the facts of the gospel, but your life doesn't have to change. Listen, I don't ever say that to my kids. When I look at my kids, I said, you need to bear fruit. (laughs) Now you say, I'm not trying to bear fruit because it's external, but I tell them a true Christian bears fruit. I tell my, my kids, a true Christian loves God's people. A true Christian loves God's church. A true Christian loves God's law. A true Christian wakes up and can't believe that God forgave his sin. Can you ever forget that? Listen, I looked at my dad. He's dying. And I looked at him. I think, man, there is a sinner saved by God's grace, right? Now, it's all God's grace, isn't it? But all I know is my dad changed. You say, uh, did your dad become some outstanding theologian? No. You say, did your dad become some outstanding leader at the church? No. Did your dad ever become an elder at the church? No. Did your dad write books? No. But listen, when I'm I'm seeing him, I'm thinking, he's a sinner saved by grace. And all I know is when the gospel got a hold of him in his 30s, his life changed. And you know what's hard with my Greek family? Once my mom and dad got saved, they couldn't hang out with the Greek family as much as they wanted to because they thought my dad was so different. Chris, what's wrong with you? Chris, how come you're not like you? His heart had changed. And so a believer here can't go that way because it's contrary that Christ came. He bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And listen, if Christ came to remove our sin, and in the text we talked about that two weeks ago, that he himself was sinless, then those who are born again cannot continue in a pattern of sin. And I just ask this question, why would you ever want to dishonor Christ when he died and bled in your place? See, a true believer, oh, we sin. If we say we have no sin, we lie and deceive ourselves. And the truth is not us. You say, what's John talking about? He's talking about someone practicing that. And if you really understand why Christ came and saved you, then you would understand that you have a desire internally to live righteousness, live in righteousness. Do you remember that verse? You don't have to turn to it in your Bible. Remember the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And then it says in in Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all, what? Lawlessness. Jesus Christ died redeemed us, bought us off the market, if you will, purchased us by, the, by the, his blood on the cross to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for what? Good works. You say, what happens when you look at somebody and they just don't live that way? Listen, I, I don't want to be like crass, Don't give them assurance. And I could be talking about one of your children, one of your grandchildren, okay? Now, listen, you got to be careful. John is saying to us that we're not granting assurance to to someone who's living, like moving this way, okay? Because a true believer transformed, sees the work of Christ. He redeemed us. We don't want to go back into that once what we were once saved out of it, okay? And so a believer cannot live in ongoing sin because the Savior came to take away our sin and make us holy and push us towards holiness. Consequently, look again at the text. Do you see it now clearly? Verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on what? Sinning. It's a strong statement, but I think we get it. 
the one who abides in him will not, I want to be clear here, practice sin as a habitual pattern of disobedience. You say, why? Look at the text again in 3.6. No one who abides in him. Again, you know that word. No one who dwells in him. No one who remains in Christ keeps on sinning. And again, he's talking about practice. No one who does that, no one who abides in him, keeps on sinning because no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or what? Know him. Now listen, let me just make this distinction. You say, well then pastor, then it seems like we're, we're, we're on a treadmill of righteousness here. How, how do we know, how do we, how do we really know if I'm his or if I'm the devil's? I mean, that's John Black. Listen, do you have a practice of abiding? Not perfection, direction. Do you have a practice of righteousness? Do you sense in your heart from the Spirit that you're part of that family of God? Do you have a desire for purity? And, and another way to say it now, do you have also just a hatred for sin so that as you once move this way, you're now going this way. Those are the marks of a man or woman of God. And that's my dad. You know, he never, it wasn't, I'll tell you about my dad though. You know why I know he was absolutely redeemed? He shared Christ with everyone. I, I, you know, he, he just, everybody would come into contact because his heart was changed. You, you say, well, why was it changed? God saved him. You say, well, he's, a, he's like a super committed Christian. No. He's a normal Christian. And what I'm talking about is Christianity 101 here. We're not talking, this is for everyone. This is not just for people who are leaders. This is just what a Christian is and what a Christian does. So I pray, amen, that we have that type of assurance as we walk forward. We'll pick it up and finish till verse 10 next week.